Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. Connection is foundational to our humanity, but at a time when society is more polarized than ever, creating connection with others, especially those that are different from ourselves, can feel challenging. Overcoming this tension takes care, compassion, and empathy. How do we develop these essential skills to not only connect with each other, but also connect with ourselves and our values? This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Dr. Simran Jeet Singh. He's an educator, writer, and activist on religion, racism, and justice. Simran is the Executive Director for the Aspen Institute's Religion and Society Program and the author of The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. He's also the author of the children's book, Fauja Singh Keeps Going, the true story of the oldest person to ever run a marathon. In 2020, Time Magazine recognized him among 16 people fighting for a more equal America. Simran, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So happy to be with you. Absolutely. So tell us about yourself, you know, tell us about how you became passionate about this intersection of religion, justice, and equality. Yeah, so I am uh, born and raised uh, in the States in a, in a part of the country called Texas that some people may have heard of. Um, and, uh, and my family immigrated from India. Um, my parents did. And uh, as part of their faith background, uh, they're practicing Sikhs. Uh, they wear turbans. We wear turbans. Um, I have a long beard. I have brown skin. And uh, and we were some of the only six in all of South Texas growing up. And so part of part of my experience in this country growing up was, uh, you know, racism was in everyday uh, reality uh, for my family and for me. And and learning to deal with that um, really uh, I mean, it, it's it's been my life's work, and and part of what really put me onto this trajectory uh, of thinking about these issues and and dealing with them professionally um, was uh, I was a senior in high school when the terrorist attacks of nine eleven happened, hmm. and and the racist backlash that followed was, I mean, it was intense. Uh, we were getting death threats that day, and and it was so jarring for me as someone who knew nothing about the identity of the attacker. Like I had never heard of Osama bin Laden. I've never heard of Al Qaeda. Um, I'm an American. So I had barely heard of Afghanistan uh, because we don't do geography so well here in this country. Uh, <laughs> but like, it was this strange thing where people on the street were like, you are the enemy and saying all kinds of hateful stuff to me. And I was like, what, what do you mean? Like, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And so I think that's really when I started to understand um, how racism, it's not that it was new for me and I had never been affected by it, but it was, it was when I started to understand how people are racialized, how we have certain stereotypes and expectations of one another. 
and, and that can inform how we treat each other. And for me, that was on the basis of my religious appearance, my religious identity. Um, and I saw all these people around the country who were getting attacked um, and, and who were being marginalized just for where they came from or what they believed or how they looked. Uh, and to me, that, that became, you know, be, being on the receiving end of that pain, uh, I started to connect with all the people who I'd never met before who were going through the same thing. And it became, it became a really important issue for me to focus my life on. Yeah. And you talk a lot more about your experience growing up and the racism that you experienced yet your book, you chose the title, the light we give. (laughs) So let's talk about how those experiences shaped your perspective to something that you've been able to, I guess, in large part use to help others, you know, see things differently. Yeah. I I mean, I think this is the challenge of our lives, right? Like Mm -hmm. there are so many difficulties we all face and each of us has our own struggles. And, you know, for me, it happened to be uh, that I wore a turban in a country where people had never seen turbans before and and didn't know what to make of me and, and, and really saw us as, as threats. And that was, you know, that's, that's been a big part of my challenge in this country, but we each have our own. And I think part of the, the philosophy that has helped guide me through these difficulties has been um, to, to find, to find the goodness in the toughest mm-hmm. situations. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. My, you know, I was talking a little bit about the racism immediately after nine 11 that we faced. Um, you know, we, we were in lockdown at home and we were, we weren't leaving for several days. Um, we were watching what had happened to our country during the day, um, you know, with, the, the fallout of, of the attacks. And, and then in the evenings, we would listen to leaders from the Sikh community talk about, here are the updates on everybody who's been attacked uh, wow. in a hate crime. Uh, here's how people are doing. Here's, here's what we're doing in response in our community. And it was just coming from all sides. And, and my dad, uh, a few days after the attack, he said something like, you know, we're so lucky. And, and I was like, what do you mean we're lucky? This makes no sense. Clearly, you don't understand what's happening to us right now. And he said, well, we we have our neighbors coming to give us meals. We have your teachers and classmates are calling to check in on you and your coaches and your teammates. I mean, mm. we're so lucky that so many people care about us. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't say it in this moment. Um, but the lesson was clear that you can make a choice in your life to see the goodness around you. And, and it's harder to do that. We're wired to focus in on the negative, what we perceive as threats. Uh, and that's a survival instinct and it's great. And also it can be really challenging uh, to really uh, see the world for what it is. And, and what I truly believe is that there's more light than there is darkness, mm-hmm. that there's more uh, love than there is hate. And, and I mean, I've, I've witnessed that, I felt it, uh, but it, but it has to be intentional. And that's part of what we learn in our tradition that that you can make that choice and it's a subtle shift, but it can completely transform uh, your experience of the world. When your dad said, I mean, how did you process all of this at such a, at such a young age, right? Because I think that there's so many of us, it's not my lived experience, but I try to even put myself in your shoes just a little bit. Um, like, I don't even know how I, how, I mean, how, what's the process to move from, you know, feeling such a sense of hatred to 
okay, wait, there's love and light in here. I just need to intentionally find it. Yeah, it's it's such a good question in part because if, I, if I'm being honest, right, like these experiences, uh, you know, I'm an adolescent, I'm a teenager, yeah. I was 18 when the, the terrorist attacks happened. Um, you know, at that age, your parents give you life advice and either you ignore it or you're annoyed. And usually, right. <laughs> usually it's both, right? Like usually you're first annoyed and then you're like, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, dad. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was true for me for a lot of my life that, you know, they would, they would share these pearls and, mm. um, I, I would feel annoyed. Um, like, you know, again, going back to that example after September 11th, like, looking at my dad being like, I don't think, like, I literally thought he didn't understand what was happening. Like, um, I took him, I took him for being oblivious. And um, it's only, it's only after uh, being willing to see that different perspective, um, that way of looking at the world, uh, and then applying it that you say, oh, I, I, I see the value here, right? Like, otherwise, it's, it's a philosophy. um, It's an idea. It's a theory. And it has no impact on your life. So it's, I mean, there, there are plenty of ideas out there. And, right. and until you learn to uh, put them into action, um, you know, things sound good, but you kind of go on with your life and, and, and it doesn't matter. Um, and so I think, I think part of what really helped me um, in, in accepting and receiving uh, these ideas when they came my way, you know, sometimes from my parents, sometimes from religious teaching, sometimes from pop culture, right? They're, they're constantly around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so often we just sort of let them slide. But I, I think part of what I had to do by virtue of my identity and the way people saw me and treated me was I, I needed to find answers for myself, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what do I do in this world um, so that I don't get sucked into the hate uh, that's that's constantly coming my way. And, I, you know, in the book, I share this opening story um, of, of the first time I was called a terrorist when I was 11 years old right. by a soccer ref. And um, and he asked me to check my turban because he assumed there were some bombs or knives in there. At least that's what he said. Um, and, I, and I let him like I'd never let someone touch my turban before. And I leaned forward um, and he checked it and I hated myself for doing that. Like Mm. I just felt so upset for a long time, for weeks uh, for just, for just giving in. Uh, right. Like it's not that years old. How do you, (laughs) right. Exactly. (laughs) And and this is a, this isn't, you know, an elder, right. Somebody that you're supposed to respect and listen to. Right. An authority figure and, and more than an authority. I mean, he's a soccer ref, like in my life, like the most important person. (laughs) Totally. I (laughs) I played soccer. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, so I gave in and I was so upset. And then I told, I promised myself that I would stand up for myself next time. And then a year Mm. later, uh, a basketball teammate uh, in middle school, like he, he made a racist joke, which he meant as a joke. And I, I wasn't terribly offended by it. And, and then he ripped off my turban and, and I flashed back to this moment with the soccer ref and I was like, I'm not letting this one go. And I just started fighting him. And I, I mean, knocked him over and jumped on him and I was punching him in the head. I mean, it was, it was intense and our teammates broke us up and, um, I just remember walking away that day and saying, yeah, this doesn't feel right either. Like, I I don't feel good about my response earlier, um, which was giving in. And I didn't feel good about this response either, um, which was Mm -hmm. fighting back. And so it it occurred to me 
or at least it felt to me that there had to be another way in these situations that felt like they were lose-lose, right? Like racism is by, by default, a lose-lose situation. No, nobody's winning. Right. Um, but, but the challenge then becomes, how do you figure out a response in these moments that helps you to walk away feeling proud? And I think that's our challenge in our lives. We have, we have so many of these moments, each of us, um, where we're not sure what to do, where we feel like it's, it, it's, it, it doesn't matter what we do, we're going to end up being upset or frustrated or angry anyway. And, and to me, from that young age, it felt like there had to be a middle path as so many religious traditions describe it, uh, an alternative way where you can really engage and be yourself without becoming, you know, corroded by the nastiness that, that is around us sometimes. Right, right. So let, let's talk about this because, you know, Obviously, WorkWell is a podcast where we talk about well-being, but I will admit that this is the first time that we've talked about spirituality and religion, although, I mean, we know and I believe that, you know, spirituality or connection to something larger than us, whatever you want to call it, whatever it means to you, it plays such a significant role in our holistic health and well-being. So can you talk about how spirituality, religion helps us to create more fulfilling lives. And I guess walk this path of, you know, not being angry and hate hateful all the time. You know, how do you find this path of love and light and trying to teach others um, about acceptance, even though they aren't like you? Yeah, I love the question. And what we've learned from other areas of challenges um, that avoiding tough conversations doesn't actually make them better, right? Whether it has to do with racial diversity uh, or gender or sexual orientation, and so we've, as culturally, uh, made this agreement that okay, we're going to we're going to have the hard conversations and we're going to be better for it. Um, and religion, I think, is so often still avoided um, actively, uh, deliberately, because culturally we just have no idea how to talk about religion and religious difference. And, and I, you know, I understand why historically, I understand why politically, I understand why practically, uh, because re religion is hard and it gets messy very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but I think, you know, there is, there are a few places where, um, or a few ways in which talking about religion in appropriate ways can add real value uh, in the workplace. And, and one of them has to do with our conversations on identity. Um, people, uh, still a majority of Americans, a large majority of the world identifies as religious, uh, considers themselves to be a practitioner or at least affiliated with a religious tradition. And, and it's a salient part of their identity. So if we're avoiding something that matters to people um, and we're making it taboo to talk about it, uh, we're not giving them the opportunity to show up as their full selves mm -hmm. to work. And, and as we've learned through our research on psychological safety and so on, um, that's that's not what creates the most inclusive workplace environment. So I think right. that's one uh, area of, of improvement culturally uh, that we that we ought to start pushing on and, and leaning into. Um, to answer your question, though, I, I think part of what you were getting at is what does spiritual and religious philosophy have to offer us as we think about the workplace setting and, and yeah. holistic living and, and our well-beings. And I think, you know, for me, 
part of part of what's going on here is we have this aversion to organized religion because we're afraid of proselytization or we're afraid of people trying to convert one another, whatever it is, the power dynamics. And I think to me, that's that's not what I mean when, I, when I'm saying let's talk about religion. What, I, what I'm really talking about is what are the insights and the values and the wisdom that we can draw from that is universally applicable uh, right. for us as, as we look. And that's progress. that's what your book is about. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah my book yeah. is about my life as a sick and sick yeah. philosophy, but really it's about these ideas that have changed my life and have the promise. How of do we apply everything. them? Yes, exactly. And I think that's, I think that's the best of religion, right? Like it's not actually about your ego or your community or whatever it is. It's about these, these principles and teachings and practices that can make us better. And, and I, you know, in, in my experience and, and in my work in the diversity and inclusion space, I think there is, there are a lot of shortcomings uh, in the ways that we approach and think about diversity, equity, inclusion uh, in our country today. Um, and I think there are some really important teachings uh, from spiritual and religious traditions uh, that could at least help us help guide us into a better way that that creates um, more opportunities, creates more equity and, and creates stronger communities for all of us. And can you talk about one or two of those, what you think those are? So one of the one of the challenges that I see with the diversity and inclusion model, right there, there's a lot of progress that's coming with it, and I'm and I'm grateful for that. Uh, but part of the challenge is, at the end of the day, we're still reinforcing individual identity, and we're creating a more and more uh, hyper individualized society where we care more about our individual selves and have a harder and harder time connecting with others and creating a collective sense of identity. And so when you have that, empathy and compassion are really hard. Uh, it's harder to feel someone else's pain. It's harder to walk in their shoes. And at the end of the day, it's really hard to humanize people yeah. who are different from us. And so what we learn in spiritual traditions, which is very different uh, than what we are doing uh, within our DEI workplace uh, development right now, is is that ego is the root of human suffering. So many traditions say this, mm -hmm. including my own. And so what do you do when that is the core of, of our challenges? Um, empathy, humility, like these become core practices that we then prioritize as ways of looking beyond ourselves, right? The world is not about you. It's not just about you. And actually what I learned from my own philosophy is that you yourself are happier when you are less obsessed with yourself, less self-centered, and you are more generous with others. And that's, again, it's very countercultural. It's very different from how our society operates today. But I think so many of us have felt this personally. Mm -hmm. We've lived it out where we have come to know. And, and we say it all the time, right? It's better to give than receive. Right. It's, it's part of our cultural understanding, but it's not part of our cultural ethos. Um, and, I, and I think leaning into that particular idea, um, whether it's from Christian philosophy, which it, which it is, whether it's from Islamic teachings, which it is, whether it's from Buddhism, which it is, right? It's, it's in all of these traditions. Or it's just a really good way to live your life, right? <laughs> exactly. It's, it's so funny. Like I, I, I have these two little girls that I'm raising and I'm like, I don't 
really care what religion you end up. I mean, I would love for you to love the one that I practice because we could share that. I don't, I don't even care if they're religious at the end of the day. I just want them to be happy, right? Like that's what we want in our lives. We just want to be happy. And this is a really simple formula that is time tested. Uh, We've done it uh, historically and still we are in this place where we we're having such a hard time seeing it. So anyway, I, I think that that's one teaching that I think could really transform the way that we approach ourselves and one another in our society today that would create so much more joy and, and address so much of our pain. Yeah, I, I love that. And it resonates with me so much. And, you know, it, it's something that we've been working on, you know, moving to kind of what we're collectively calling communities of care with inside of our organization, right? So moving beyond, mm. obviously, from a well-being perspective, you know, foundationally, you have to take care of yourself and your own well-being. But part of that is actually, you know, caring for others, right? And, I, mean, I think the misnomer around self-care is that we, none of us can really take care of ourselves by ourselves, right? So it's not truly self-care. You need other people. Um, in order to right. to thrive um, and to really live a, a meaningful life. So what you said just really resonates with me and where we're trying to move as an organization when it comes to um, the idea of care and, and well-being and so many other things. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And I think, you know, um, the, the notion of self-care itself is it's so valuable and in, and in so many ways it's, it's distorted and, and creating <laughs> challenges. You yeah. know, Audrey Lord, when she, when she offered this concept, uh, she was living in a very different context. And I, I, I think she meant she, I think she understood it very different, right? She was a yeah. black lesbian woman struggling with health issues in the eighties in poverty. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's a different context. And then part of what she's saying is her survival requires self-care. And I think there's there's something really important to draw from that. But part of what we're seeing today is, and and what I mean by distortion is so commonly um, we are seeing people over and over uh, justify self-gratification as self-care. Right. And like I think wine what Wednesdays we're, and <laughs> right, need, right. Exactly. I need, I need to go do this because of X and I deserve it type of thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. even that I'm like, that's great. Like enjoy life. That's what it's right. for. And I have, Absolutely. I have no, I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. And I think that's really important. Um, but, but it feels like we've lost the depth of the, that idea um, and have been telling ourselves something that it's not. And so, so to me, um, what does it really look like to care for yourself? And, and again, we can go back to our individual lives and say, sure, like get that extra ice cream or whatever. But what are you doing to really, to really bring fullness to, to your whole self and, mm. and, and to your well-being? And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's there's more work for us to do there. Yeah, I love that. So. Let's talk about something else that you that you talk a lot about in in your own experience and in your book is you know a positive mindset right and and clearly that's such a big part of your story and this is something I think positivity is probably another one of these concepts that's that's getting distorted a little bit with positive mm-hmm. vibes only and you know things like that but can you talk about first of all what it means to you to have a positive mindset and and the importance of it but how do you maintain that even in the face of hardship 
Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question, and I I, I love that you brought up the positive vibes only, and <laughs> and now we're talking about toxic positivity, and yeah. um, you know, I think I think part of what people are struggling with um, is the tendency, or at least the desire, to cover life's difficulties under the shroud of under the shroud of positivity, just to say like. We only want positive energy. We don't want to deal with challenges. We don't want to deal with difficulties. And, and I get that. I, I wish life worked that way. Um, but but <laughs> what, what we're effectively running into is avoidance, right? Like we're not dealing with the challenges that are there. And, and I think that's, again, that's, that's just not what is going to drive us. That's not what's going to take us to happiness or to liberation or, or anything like that, right? Like I, I think we all know this in our personal, I mean, I do this too. I'm, I'm a... I'm conflict diverse. I, I will step away from any challenge that I can. Um, and, and in the meanwhile, uh, I've learned that they get worse and they snowball and then they come back and they, they bite you in the ass. Right. So these are, these are real, um, human tendencies, uh, mm-hmm. including for me. Um, and, and so what, what do you do instead? What is, what is a healthy optimism look like? And I think from my tradition, what I learn is, you see the world for what it is. And that means you, you can accept that life's challenges are real, right? There, there are so many worldviews that, that will present to you this idea that the world is an illusion. And, and I understand what is meant by that. But one of the challenges then becomes, well, if it's all fake, then I can just ignore it and then I can die and then I can move into something that's more real. And, and <laughs> I have a hard time buying into that. Right, because we all experience pain, we all experience joy, and those feelings are so real. Mm-hmm. Like people suffering, to take someone who's suffering, and to say, "Oh, j- it's just a mind, a mindset issue. Just, just change your mindset, and, and you'll stop being in pain." Uh, that seems so um, inhumane to me. Right? And it never works, there's... right? When somebody's like, oh, just, just, you know, just let it go or just think positive. You're like, okay, yeah. I mean, that makes it worse, actually, yeah. <laughs> for yeah, me. Yeah, exactly. Anyway. It does. <laughs> and, and it's annoying, right? Like if, yeah. if, if, my, if my wife comes home and tells me something about her work and she's upset and it's bothering her and I say, don't worry about it, it's fine. Like then she gets upset at me because she's like, yeah. no, it's not fine. And, and it's, it's on me to recognize yeah. The reality that for her, it's not fine, even if it's going to be fine. It's yeah, not. and I, I'm I'm someone who lives with anxiety, so when I'm anxious, when somebody's like, "Oh, don't be anxious or don't worry about it," I'm like, "Yeah, but you don't actually understand." I mean, like if I if I could yeah. control that, <laughs> trust me, I would love to, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> right? No, it, I, I think that's exactly. It's such a good example, and um, and and I think you know, then the question becomes. You know, going back to this, going back to this point, what what is healthy optimism look like? Yeah. It is it's seeing the world for what it is, and also, and 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 taking it seriously, right? So like recognizing the reality of people's pain, including your own, mm. uh, that life is hard, that life is challenging, and life is joyful, and those are true at the same time. And and I think it's recognizing and accepting that reality, while also recognizing um, that there is constantly and consistently the potential for good mm. um that it's always there and that you just just like my dad after the 9-11 right. um, attacks just like my dad in that moment knowing that you have the choice to see the good 
And I think that that to me is what optimism looks like, a healthy optimism. Um, you see the pain, you deal with the pain, but also you can see the goodness that's all around you too. And, you know, I have a practice that I've developed for this. Um, and it was, I mean, it was especially, um, I, I don't even know the word. It was, it was life-changing during the pandemic because mm -hmm. I live in New York City, epicenter yeah. of, of COVID when it started. We got it early. My wife works at the hospital. And, and it was really, really scary, uh, especially with our young kids. And, and it, was, it was really easy to get sucked into uh, this, this feeling that, you know, nothing good would ever happen again, uh, that, that everything was falling apart. And, and what I started doing, and this is something I did as a teenager a little bit, but really started in earnest uh, during the pandemic, um, was I just, I just walked out of my apartment and walked down the street and watched people. Mm. And, and I would just see what they would do. And, you know, in New York, people watching is great. It's, it's a, <laughs> I don't know, like a cultural pastime here. Uh, but you don't, actually, you don't actually watch people to see the good stuff. You usually watch people to make fun of them. Um, and so, and so I, I would, I go outside of my apartment and walk down the street and just watch what people do. And, and anytime I have this feeling that people are terrible, which especially recently, it's easy to feel that way, that everyone is hateful or angry or violent or whatever these, these feelings are, I would just go down and watch people and, and see the little things that they would do for one another, you know, helping someone with their grocery bag or opening up a cab door for someone. I saw that this morning when I was out, out walking, um, you know, strangers, they don't know one another. And in New York, you're not really supposed to talk to anyone <laughs> or demonstrate any kind of kindness, but like it's constantly there. And I think part of what is different uh, when, when I do this practice is those random acts of kindness don't really seem random, uh, that it is part of who we are as people and, and being able, I mean, just taking a moment and taking the effort to see that completely changes the way that I see other people around me where, you know, I might walk out feeling mistrust and I walk back in feeling like, okay, like mm -hmm. these are, these are good people around us and not everyone is out to get me. And yeah, that, that part of it really serves well the, the desire to be more optimistic. So I love this practice and I love people watching, especially in airports, because I, mm. I do spend a lot of time in airports. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess my question is like, and you said you saw it this morning out on a walk. So I would imagine like many other practices, especially since this is a well-being podcast. I mean, is this something that now, like anytime you kind of go out for a walk, it's it, like you, you kind of key into these types of things because you've developed this practice of looking for the good. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, and I think it's only really a question that somebody would ask if they have practices of their own, because it's, it's exactly how this stuff works, right? Yeah. Like you, you do it one day and you do it at the second day and you do it the third day. And by the fifth or sixth or seventh day, um, it becomes more habituated. Yeah. Um, and you don't have to do it so consciously. And I wouldn't say, you know, you, you asked the question, do I key in on these? I, I don't think so. I mean, I think I notice them in ways that most people don't notice them, but it's not like I'm actively looking for them or I'm, it's not, it's not that I'm going out of my way right. trying to find the goodness in people. It just has become 
something that is more ingrained um, because it's become a, a longer standing practice for me. And so, yeah, I, I especially, um, you know, the one of the, everyone has their own sort of random things that they notice in life. Like for me, um, the thing that I love more than anything is watching a New Yorker walk down the sidewalk, see somebody about to enter the door of a, an establishment, a restaurant or a bodega or whatever, and they'll walk over, open the door and then just keep walking. And, and, you know, you have to realize in that moment that they weren't going in. They, they had the thoughtfulness to see someone about to go in, wanted to give them a hand and then went on. They, there's no credit desire. There's, there's not, it's not about them at all. And so for me, that's one that just sticks out that I feel like I notice every time it's around me because yeah. there's something really powerful about that for me. And, and I think we all have our own sorts of tiny moments and, and acts of kindness that, that we can, that, that we all appreciate. And so looking for those, I think is, is really powerful. Yeah. I love that. And obviously we can tell that we're recording this real time from New York city with the sirens in the background. So <laughs> can't escape. No, just trying them, to prove right? it. <laughs> So, exactly. so let's talk about, um, you know, relationships, both at work and in our personal life, and just that society is so polarized, which, you know, in my experience, then makes it harder to connect with people who are different from ourselves. You know, I think we as human beings, we already have a natural tendency to, you know, to go towards people that are like us. But then when you add all of this polarization on top of it, it, it makes it even harder. And you know, kind of exacerbates the problem even more. So talk about how we can overcome that and use care and compassion, like built to build connection across these differences when we live in this world, that's kind of making it really, really hard to do that right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I, th I think there are multiple uh, practices and strategies that I have for this because I, I agree with you. It's so hard and it feels even harder now than it did 10 years ago when I, when I really started thinking about these, these challenges. Um, but I'll share one that I think um, is, is both simple um, yet pragmatic. And that is, um, you know, e even the way you describe the question, which is the way that so many of us think is we're, we're more, we, we have a tendency as humans to go to people who are more like us. I'll share an embarrassing story with you actually that, um, <laughs> that, uh, that highlights this and, and how I learned the truth of this, which is, uh, so I grew up in Texas, uh, no people from my background who lived down there. And so when I was moving to New York where there's a big sick population, I was so excited because I was like, I'm going to meet so many people who are just like me. And I started hanging out with six and really enjoyed it. I found a group of guys who were about my age, who liked basketball, who liked, you know, going out to eat and, and those kinds of things. Um, and the more time I spent with them, I was like, man, they are so different. Like we have very little in common, uh, <laughs> actually, in terms of how we see the world. And, and, and I was thinking about them in relation to my friends in college and high school. Uh, and I was like, man, I am actually more similarly oriented uh, to the world with my friends in college than I am to people of my own faith who I, who I thought would see the world similarly. And so it was, it was of course, that's how the world works, right? Like it's, it's kind of embarrassing to admit now that I ever thought that it would be that way. But I mean, what I've learned is time and time again, I make these assumptions that someone who is 
um, living in the same neighborhood as me or someone who is the same race or gender or whatever as me uh, will have more in common with me than someone who looks different or has a different accent or whatever it is. And so part of part of the challenge, I think, is how limited we are in thinking about who we are as people, um, the way that we put ourselves into little categories and check mark boxes mm-hmm. and say, I am X, Y, Z. And so my people are also X, Y, Z. And if you're not either X or Y or Z, you're not one of my people. And it's just, it's just not true. Um, and I found that over and over again. And I have people uh, who I consider my people who come from all different stripes, um, come from all different kinds of backgrounds. And it's, it's, it's that initial entry point into, into finding what you have in common with people. But the, I think the reality is we have a lot in common with every single person um, mm. in this world. And, and so the, the point is, and this is, I mean, it's a simple point, um, but the limitation is not our identities or our differences uh, that we have with one another. It's, it's how we see our identities and our differences. Mm. Uh, and there, we, we put such a tight um, boundary around who we are for ourselves uh, that we are then unable to see the full humanity of who we are and of, of the people we're encountering in the world. And so there's just this constant challenging that, that I think has to happen internally to say, this is who I am beyond uh, these, these tick boxes that we've developed. And also other people around us uh, that we're meeting every day are more than their race and their gender and their class and so on. And so I, I think that kind of opening up and expansion. Yeah, I love that. How, and how does this tie into because you talk a lot about values right so and the importance of values um you know especially i mean i I think about it kind of from the lens of 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 well-being and our own well-being journey but also in relation to others and our world right (laughs) um but can you talk about your view on values why they're important and then I, i think for so many people like I, values to me in some ways is similar to purpose. You know, they can sometimes feel fuzzy or hard to grasp. Like how do we go about identifying and sticking to our values and, you know, in the world that we live in, that's kind of constantly telling us we should value this or that, or, um, you know, but it's really kind of an inside, an inside job first, right? Yeah. Part of what's been illuminating for me um, is realizing that we we know it's a best practice for companies to identify their values um, and and to develop uh, processes to hold themselves accountable to those values. Right, like that's that's a given at this point of where we are in our world. And what's less obvious to us is how much this approach can benefit us as individuals uh, if we learn to apply it uh, in our daily lives too. And that's, and that's something that my parents taught us again, going back to this point that um, when you're a teenager, you're annoyed by everything your parents do. (laughs) I mean, they, they, they started to instill uh, very intentionally and explicitly uh, the practice of 
um, identifying and, and articulating what your particular values are. Um, and we would go through this exercise as a family um, and, and I hated it at first and never really thought it would be something uh, that would make a difference in my life. And, and part of what I learned was until you do this or without doing this, um, when those difficult moments come in your life, um, your, your intuitive response um, is going to be reactionary. Mm. Um, you're only going to do whatever comes to your mind in the moment. And if yeah. you haven't really prepared yourself for these difficult moments, um, you're probably going to end up in this place where you are shame, ashamed of how you responded, right? Like, let's think for a moment about my, my, my experience with, um, that, that I shared earlier about the, the referee who right. tried to touch my turban and I was upset with how I responded then. And then, uh, my friend who pulled off my turban and I was upset that I fought him afterwards. And, and part of what I've learned is the best way to prepare a compass for yourself so that you know how to deal with these situations, um, is, is to have a clear sense of what your values are and to develop daily practices for each mm -hmm. of them. And, and I'll say, um, you know, what I've learned through my experiences with racism, but I think this is true for life in general. Like there's, there's no formula, there's no, um, there's no clear, you know, step one, step two, step three, in, in order to deal with the challenges we face, both because usually there's not enough time, but also life is so complicated. Right. And so it's, it's not helpful to say, here is exactly what I will do in exactly this situation, right. because it, it never plays out like that. Clear path. Um, We'd love it right. if there was a clear path. <laughs> it, would, yeah, it would be so much easier. I would love that. Yeah. Um, but it's not, unfortunately. And so, so what has been most instructive for me and most mm -hmm. valuable for me has been to identify those values, to put them onto paper, to develop daily practices, to ensure that I'm cultivating each one on a daily basis so that when push comes to shove uh, and I am in one of those difficult moments, I'm ready. And I will say for me, and, and this is part of what I try to share in the book, like it's worked and it makes sense, right? It makes sense that it works because we know that this is how human behavior operates, right? right? You, you, there, there is, you can have all these ideas in your head, you know all the philosophies. It doesn't matter if you're not ready to to put them into your life. And so, it's it's the the understanding of what those values are for you personally, and then the practice of them that go hand in hand. Right. Um, that's that's really what gets you ready for for living into them. And 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 to your point, just to close this out, this thought out. Um, that is where you find purpose. Like that is where you find satisfaction. Like I, I, I will, I mean, we're talking about well-being and wholeness. Uh, part of what it means to be whole is to live with integrity, uh, where you are closing the gap between who you aspire to be, uh, and who you are. Right. And, and that means following through, following through on your actions, uh, towards whatever those aspirations are that you've identified. And so, what we learn in, in the Sikh philosophy is you can become these qualities if you if you live by them every day. So it's mm -hmm. I, I think that's the idea of becoming a quality is is a really powerful one for me. Yeah, 
That is, and very beautifully said. Thank you. So final question, and I want to talk to you about another book that you wrote that maybe isn't as well known. <laughs> <laughs> it's a children's book called Foudra's Sing Keeps Going. And this is an mm. incredible story of, of perseverance. So talk to me about this book and then also tell me why it was such an important story for you to share with children. Oh, I'm both surprised and very happy <laughs> that you're bringing this up. It's not what I would expect in a uh, in a in a podcast conversation like this. But you know, it there there is a really valuable tie-in. Um, you know, of, of course, for me, this this story is about the world's oldest marathoner, the first mm -hmm. to ever run a marathon at the age of 100, and so it's my personal inspiration. Uh, he changed my life. I started running marathons uh, when I saw him cross the line at a hundred and actually it was, it was mostly inspiration, but it was definitely, um, a good part of it was shame. Like I, what am I doing with my life if I'm <laughs> avoiding running, uh, marathons when he is, um, but as I, as I got to know him, um, I started to realize that he, he challenged so many of my assumptions of what a hero could look like. Mm. And of course, for me, the, the first one that I wanted to share with the world was here's a guy with a turban and a beard who, who can be a hero, who is a hero. And you don't mm. typically see that, but you know, I sat with him and realized here's someone who is the living embodiment of everything that we say is wrong with our, like he is, he's elderly. We never talk about our elderly. I mean, ageism is a huge problem. Uh, he dealt with disability uh, as a child, and, and we, I, it was really important to me to show that people who have disabilities also can be heroes. Um, he was an immigrant. Um, you know, the one that really challenged me, if I'm being honest, is uh, literacy. Mm. Um, I had always assumed, I'd always been taught that the people who deserve our respect are those who are literate because they try hard and they care and, and they're smarter. And, and here I was meeting face to face with one of my heroes. And as we were talking, I learned that he never learned to read or write. Literally, the only thing he can write in the world is his name um, and not not in English. So like English access is, is another uh, cultural bias that, that I have and many of yeah. us have. And so I had to deal with the fact that my hero was illiterate um, and, and didn't even I hadn't even questioned that bias that I had until I met him. And so the, as, as I got to know him, you know, all of these ideas and challenges came to me. And I, I was thinking, man, I, this is what our kids need. Like our, our kids need to see these people as heroes too. And so that's, that's a big reason for me why the story was about somebody who accomplished something great in their lives uh, and an incredible human being, but also uh, this way of looking at, who we are as people uh, in ways that humanizes some of our, some of our biggest um, biases or humanizes people that we have biases against. And, and I thought that was really important for me, especially as a father. And I think overall just challenges our assumptions around who we believe a hero is or isn't right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I will, I will also tell you that, um, that that book for me, I mean, it's it's interesting because it's a kid's book, but that book for me um, was an expression of um, here here are some of the issues that we should be talking about and thinking about as a society, as parents, yeah. as kids. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's opened up conversations among 
adults too, uh, who are, who are saying to me, oh, I'd never really thought about ageism or I'd never really thought about ableism. And so I, I think just the, just the willingness or the, the, the opportunity to tell these stories, uh, can have a really positive effect on, on people too. Yeah. I love it. Well, Simran, I feel like we could keep going, but I, I know that uh, we only we only scheduled a certain amount of time for this conversation. It has been amazing, everything I thought it was going to be. I'm taking so much away from it. I know our listeners will too. So thank you for, for your time and for everything that you are doing for the world uh, to make it a better place because you're doing some amazing work. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Yeah. I'm so grateful Simran could be with us today to talk about spirituality, empathy, and human connection. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well. The information, opinions, and recommendations expressed by guests on this Deloitte podcast series are for general information and should not be considered as specific advice or services.